Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Lorelai Weissel-Labrizzi. I'm Chris Delano. And we are here with a very special guest, uh, author for Magic the Gathering and some other things, Kay Arsenal-Rivera. Kay, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. I've been looking forward to talking with you guys all month. Uh, that's great. And let's talk about Star Wars for a sec. Okay, let's. let's you wrote a Star War. I did write a Star mm-hmm. War from a certain point of view. Return of the Jedi. I love Star Wars. Yeah, your part. I want to get this out of the way first because I want to make sure people know about this because <laughs> Star Wars is great, and uh, I like your writing. And uh, yeah, so talk about the Star Wars project for do a little marketing. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, From a Certain Point of View is a series that has been ongoing for a couple of years now. Um, They publish one anthology every 40 year anniversary for the original movies. So there's From a Certain Point of View, A New Hope, uh, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And the idea with these is that there's 40 short stories in them and each one is keyed to a minor background character from Star Wars. Uh, So in my case, I wrote a story about the guy that Luke force kicks in uh, Return of the Jedi and, you know, the, the definitely not flubbed force kick. Yeah, quote uh, unquote force kick. Yeah. Yeah, that guy. That guy. That's it my was, dude. It wasn't just an unfortunate camera angle for a stunt kick. Surely not. It's a force kick. What's really funny, too, is that the first phase of this was everybody <laughs> naming characters that they wanted to work with for this. And I there was never anybody else for me. I I wasn't here like I'm going to write Mon Mothma or like I, I'm going to write Jabba the Hutt. No, it was always this guy for me because he's such a weird little guy. And I love him <laughs> so much. Uh, but yeah, please check it out. From a certain point of view, Return of the Jedi is now available. It features books, uh, uh, short, short stories, not just by me, but by several other authors as well. All awesome people. And there's pretty much something for everybody in here if you're even vaguely interested in star wars if you have somebody in your life who loves star wars and you don't know what to get them as a gift this is a pretty solid pick also it's large enough that you can use it as a bludgeoning instrument uh (laughs) and it's i believe the first time i've been published in hardcover uh so that's fun uh if i recall correctly you're not the only magic author to have a story in this collection but i'm trying to remember who else it is um, Let me take a quick look at the uh, term table of contents here. Uh, I'm not seeing anybody. Oh, Emma, who... Emma Miyako Kandon wrote a story for uh, the Neon Dynasty uh, set. Oh, shit. You know, I didn't even know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, Emma's great. So, yeah, no, definitely check it out. Uh, uh, Akemi also... Don Bowman oh, wrote Akemi, the Neon. Yeah, I just scrolled. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Akemi's on here. There's a there's a whole little contingent of magic authors on on this book. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of overlap there. We should I should be getting this book. Um, yeah, you should. And then you should tell all your friends to get that book. Good, 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 good list of folks on there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I'm very normal about Star Wars, so I, I did I did want to get that out of the way, so oh, I didn't forget. Um, I yeah, normal. I I'm sitting here being like, I know we're getting a live action Thrawn in Ahsoka mm-hmm. in the incoming weeks, and I'm just like, 
I know in my heart that he's not going to be as hot as he was in Rebels. <laughs> it's it's kind of impossible to reach the levels of hot Thrawn was at. But like, like well, and so also speaking of, of magic folks uh, working on Star Wars, um, Magali has done some cover uh-huh. art for some Thrawn novels, and he's so he's so hot. The woman gets it, dude. <laughs> yeah. I think it's impossible for Magali to make a character who's not hot, actually. But like, <laughs> anyway, my 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 most important Star Wars head canon is that Grand Admiral Thrawn uh, is a butch dyke who uses he him pronouns because they they are the most uh, uh, tactically effective pronouns in any given conversation. Um, I love that. <laughs> See, I'm just here waiting for Hapes to become canon again so that I can write a novel full of saucy girl bosses because uh, Hapes is my favorite uh, Legends Star Wars setting and I think it could be really cool. Uh, update it a bit, you know, move some stuff around, make it a bit less Wuzetian, and there you go. I'll write that. Hear that, Lucasfilm? That's a pitch. I don't <laughs> know that anyone from Lucasfilm listens to this podcast, but... But if, if they, they do, do that would be cool. I don't know. There's probably a bunch of nerds over there. Uh, let's let's actually talk about Magic the Gathering. <laughs> let's talk about uh, Magic the Gathering. <laughs> we're we're only okay. We're not as far into this podcast as I thought. So you wrote the Eldraine story. Though. Yes, I did. Uh, Wild Wilds of Eldraine. Well, Wilds of Eldraine. That's the name of the set. Um, so I, so I, I I live in a space where I have set codes and code names and real set names all in my head at the same time, and I forget what things are called. Wilds of Eldraine. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Follow up to uh, <laughs> a story by um, another wonderful author, uh, Kay Arsenal Rivera. I don't know if you know her. Who uh, you know, I think the, we might have met. Uh, <laughs> did the uh, March of the Machine story. So uh, you get you get to directly follow up your, your work from earlier this year. Which is a very interesting experience. Uh-huh. Um, to talk a bit about that, uh, we were working on March of the Machine very early on in the cycle for development of that set. Uh, we started work on Wilds of Eldraine like several months after I had finished uh, March of the Machine. So mm-hmm. in some ways, they feel more distant to me. And seeing mm-hmm. them right next to each other with only like two or three months. I mean, it's more than two or three months, but it doesn't feel that long. Mm-hmm. Um the back to back there is has been an interesting experience, but um, it did allow for some very cool things like being able to place an emphasis on like the Phyrexian corpses that we see all over the place and mm-hmm. the price that a lot of these planes have paid, especially Eldraine, who didn't have jack shit to do with anything in this <laughs> invasion. Yeah, they were kind of at a disadvantage, you know, being the land of fairy tales and knights. Uh, Turns out, not a great matchup against the land of biomechanical monsters and necromancy. Who would have thought? Yeah, not not really a fair fight, but uh, they made do. They sure did make do. <laughs> they did their best, but they have been thoroughly fucked up. I'm trying to, who wrote the Eldraine side story for March? Oh, it was Jenna. Jenna Helen did. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. I like Jenna. The Rankle story was so good. It was very good. Yeah, Rankle and Torbrand and kind of uh, sets us up with surprise, Talion did a thing. Mm-hmm. But we just didn't know who they were yet. 
Oh, I was reading that as it dropped. I was like, wait a second. I know what's going on here. I know who this is. <laughs> oh, huh? Oh, it was it was uh, it, knowing uh, things from the future and the way disparate timelines work from like a workflow standpoint sometimes makes engaging with magic story very amusing. It really does. OK, well. So you kind of answered like the first few questions we had on a list of questions for you all at once. Um, so, <laughs> Wait, we have a list of yeah, questions. We do have a list of questions. Uh, I was going to ask you. Out? Well, one of my questions was how soon after writing March of the Machine did you write Wilds of Eldraine? But you've already told us um, it was a while <laughs> because I remember when you were on here for March of the Machine, you mentioned that you had been contracted to work on that story before you wrote Vow and Midnight Hunt, right? Like, uh, so basically what uh, happened was I was, I wrote Val and Hunt and then, uh, I was contracted for March of the Machine shortly after, like uh, not very long at all. Uh, we were still in revisions for Val, if I'm not mistaken at the time. So then, uh, March was a very long process and I wrote most of March, uh, some months passed. And then I think I did Eldraine. And then I think somewhere in the middle of the Eldraine uh, March thing was when I wrote the new Capenna side story, which is why no one realized I'd been typecasted to write weddings at, until <laughs> that point. There, there's no wedding in, in Wilds of Eldraine. Well, I know, there's no on-screen wedding, but I mean, <laughs> Royce and Rowan learned a lot about weaving that night. Um, they certainly <laughs> did. <laughs> Um, so, and I was going to ask how different the experience was writing March of the Machine and Wilds of Eldraine, but, um, seems like they were probably very different experiences since you spent so much time on Mom versus, uh, Wilds of Eldraine. Yeah, with, with Mom, we were really in the trenches, um, so to speak, and we were very much digging deep for that story, and it, it took a long while to get it out, um, just because we were trying to put out the best story that we possibly could there. With Net uh, Wilds of Eldraine, it was. Uh, <laughs> See, I told you. I told you it's confusing. It really is. Um, with Wilds of Eldraine, firstly, it's a five episode arc mm -hmm. instead of a 10 episode arc. And that already was kind of murderous because I was used to having more space to work with in Magic Story. So getting everything down into a more, you know, manageable size there was already pretty hard. Uh, and then, of course, the Wilds of Eldraine stories is pretty jam-packed if you look at all the stuff mm -hmm. that's going on there. Um, in some senses, it's more jam-packed than the uh, March of the Machine story is, because with mm -hmm. March, we had time to slow down and to do like the Tommy O episode um, and to just kind of have very drawn out character beats that had time to breathe like the Tamiyo episode and the Elspeth bottle episode could happen because we had that space to work with with wilds of Eldrain, we really only had five episodes they were supposed to be five thousand words i went over on quite a few of them <laughs> uh just because i i wanted to fit so much into these stories i think there's so much to work with in terms of the narrative parallels in terms of the references in terms of the vibe uh, but to give you an idea how jam-packed the Wilds of Eldraine story was, we actually, uh, we almost cut, like, several sections, like the whole encounter with the goose almost got cut. And oh. we both loved that so much. Um, but that's how, like, intense editing this was. We were like, this is 
so long. Uh, how do we find space for other stuff here? Uh, and yeah, it, it was an intense process, but honestly, it was a lot of fun too. With Wilds of Eldraine, I did something that I hadn't, I did in parts of March of the Machine, but not so much. Um, the Tyvar sections of March of the Machine are written to sound like Saxon poetry. They're written to evoke like Beowulf and stuff like that. Uh, March of the Machine, uh, rather, Wilds of Eldraine is written to evoke fairy tales um, as much as possible and uh, like old folklore and things like that. Uh, so I got to really fuck around with my prose itself in Wilds mm -hmm. of Eldraine, which was just very satisfying. Um one thing that you might notice as you're reading it is that I tend to use uh, English root words more often than I do like Latin or Greek ones or cognates from other languages there. And that's done on purpose because it's it's trying to evoke that feeling of an old story. It's really nerdy. Yeah, it's I'm very excited about it, though. <laughs> that's like, <laughs> no, it is very good and very excellent. And it gets um I was about to say phonic texture, but that's just mouthfeel. And I love the word mouthfeel better than the phrase phonic texture. Um, yeah, it, it, it gives the prose a certain mouthfeel when when you speak it. Um, and that's a good vibe uh, that for for the tone of the piece to be that um, kind of aligned with its historic, I give a quote, quote unquote, historic because we're. I guess mostly <laughs> from fiction here, but not historic as in artifacts, uh, sagas and legendaries. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't have time for magic jokes. We're talking about the English language here. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So you, you talked, you talked a lot about things that I want to talk about. There's I, okay. I really loved the wilds of Vildrain story. Um, I'm just going to put that out there and say, it's probably my favorite five set, five story main set story, however you want to phrase that, that we've had so far. Um, I think it worked incredibly well. Um, you're talking about like one of the biggest things I noticed uh, was the fact that this is your first time really writing five stories for a magic story, <laughs> because the way that mid and Val were set up was like two, five store, two, five story, five chapter stories. There we go. Put together yeah. into a 10 chapter story. Um, and there was like mm -hmm. a satisfying ending to to Midnight Hunt um, that sort of closed off that story before Val took off. But they were very, very interconnected. Um, in this case, you had five stories. And I talked a lot on the podcast already about how much I appreciated the pacing in it um, and how well it was it was structured. And you've you've kind of cut on to the fact that, like, you had to fight to keep some things in there. Um, the goose is, I think, a very important part of the pacing um, <laughs> in that it sets a perfect tone for that story and gives us so much. Um, so I was just curious, like, did you start with a, like, I have five episodes, here is how this has to be structured, or was this sort of like a write it out and then go, how do I fit this into five stories? Um, well, when it comes to magic story, we're always given, usually given, I should say, um, like beats and stuff that does need to happen. Depending uh -huh. on the set, you might get like a fuller outline. Uh, Wilds of Eldraine had a fuller outline than something like March or um, Midnight Hound and Crimson Vow did. We were pretty sure about like what needed to happen overall in that just going in. Uh -huh. um, so 
it was it was more of a question of how do we jam all of this in mm-hmm. <laughs> um and th- there were certainly some points at which that was a difficulty we had to cut a fair bit uh, out from the story unfortunately but um yeah it going in we knew we had five and we knew it was going to be difficult and uh settling on the narrative parallels between Rowan and Kellen was kind of the cheat code to making that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They, that was a big thing um, that I noticed and wanted to talk about was like the stories of Rowan and Will and Kellen and Ruby um, are like this mirror, like the, they're, they're, they're a very contrasting narratives, but they have a very strong overlapping theme where you have Kellen and Rowan sort of mirrors of each other of like, hey, we're both on a quest. How do we handle this? Um, and Rowan does not uh, very well. Um, <laughs> she has some problems. Uh, and I Rowan's going yeah, through it. She is going she's through it. She's fine. She's making great decisions. She's taking initiative. She's caring about the well-being of the people around her. Um, she's... I don't know if I can spin this anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well, we love to support women's wrongs as mm-hmm. well as women's rights. And that's what it comes down to. But part of that process um, that you were asking about um, in terms of fitting things in, part of it did involve just as I was writing, sitting there and going, OK, how can I set up an echo between these two sections? Um, an example of that being in the uh, banquets mm-hmm. section where. Uh, they're both going to these ballrooms and I could have the dance as an echoing thing and I could have the ball as an echoing thing between the two to kind of reinforce those um, differences between them, but also similarities. So anytime I could find an opportunity to sneak one of those in there, I I generally went for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one one of the things I like about fiction, got this is, my bullshit big picture thinking. Uh, one of the things I like about storytelling is when overarching structures can be used to reinforce a bunch of things in stories. So, like, mm-hmm. one of the things that makes this story work is this mirroring that that allows you to bounce an idea between an A-plot and a B-plot and reinforce those kinds of things in a little amount of space, which is part of the needs of this story. Um, We've seen a lot of really good different structural things. Um, um, Reinhardt used the Ashiak letters in the one story to send Elspeth on a a freaking emotional journey. Kate Elliott used the the Ugin framing, Ugin and Bolas framing story uh, in Chronicles of Bolas and mirrored that with a lot of the things happening in the Tarkir part of that story. Uh, and, and so looking at story structures like that um, can reveal a lot about how characters are functioning, where themes are being expressed and repeated and twisted and mused upon and uh I, I i think that is absolutely i think my favorite thing about the wilds story the wilds of eldraine story that that you did is, is how much of it um i i don't did you see the comic there was a comic that was talking about like ruby's arc and rowan's oh, yeah. arc as mm-hmm. the two girls in red 
Yeah, that was incredible. Um, uh, that's good lit analysis. It really is. No, <laughs> I love I, seeing that. Not to have I, a degree in lit analysis, but that's great. I love when people have brain cells. <laughs> um, I I love seeing that sort of thing. And I think that Ruby especially is such an interesting character for that, because even Kellen, of course, is a foil for Rowan. Uh, but I think Ruby is in some mm-hmm. ways an, like an even more potent one, because she also has mm-hmm. a brother that, you know, she's trying to look after who who attacks her at the start. And mm-hmm. you get sort of that's at the start of Ruby's arc, but it's at the end of Rowan's. Um, mm-hmm. And they're both learning kind of how to step into being who they are. Mm-hmm. And Rowan just takes a completely different direction to it than Ruby does. And I just while working on this, being able to play these characters off of each other was just so rewarding with the space that I was given. Mm hmm. Well, you also have like Kellen and Ruby growing to, you know, closer together. Mm-hmm. Um, Rowan and Will growing apart. Um, there's also this kind of generational gap. Rowan and Will are now in their early 20s. You know, they're maybe have bachelor's degrees. I don't know exactly how Strixhaven works, <laughs> but, um, you know, you know, we met them when they were teenagers. Um and we watched them go to school and start to get their own identities. And now that they're not tethered by a spark, they're their own people making their own decisions. Um, and we have like the next generation of teenagers who are a little bit younger than Rowan and Wilbur when we met them, but like are are back in that teenage. Like we have a new group of teenagers on Aldrain, like adventuring together and there's that kind of sense of passage of time and uh, the parallels between those arcs as well. It's good. It's good. Yeah, that's that's one <laughs> way to good. put it. It's good. Uh, it's just, well, well, thank you. You, 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 t- you talked a lot about how like dense these stories are. Mm-hmm. And in order to tell the story of Wild Silver Train in five uh, chapters, like every sentence is doing work in these stories. It's it's really a good example of really tight, effective writing. Oh, thank um, you so much. Uh, as a person who is known for writing 165,000 word plus fantasy novels, uh, that's a delight to hear. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, trust me. Tight writing is really hard. I'm not the best at it either. Uh, and and it's really, a st- it's hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. Honest to God, I think Twitter has helped a lot. Um, When Twitter had 140 characters and like you had to make a point, you have 140 characters to make a good pithy point. That's legitimately good practice for learning how to construct sentences in like the most effective manner. You know how I practiced tight writing? Yeah. I used to write a fan fiction blog and it was an ask Uh blog and people could Uh submit word counts Uh and it would never be more than 500. Oh my god! So when uh, before I was working on Wizards of the Coast, uh, working for Wizards of the Coast in a part-time capacity, because I'm a contractor, <laughs> um, people always people talk to me like I'm a Wizards employee, and I'm like, no, <laughs> not at all. Uh, anyway, uh, on Tumblr, I had uh, had a blog that uh, was a bunch of things at first, and then mostly just became magic. Because I focused on an audience and got a way bigger audience that way. 
Mm. Um, and so one of the things I would do every now and then was uh, in order to specifically practice tighter writing was uh, I'd hit random on gatherer until I saw a piece of art that sparked an idea in my head. And I give myself a 500 word limit, write a 500 word piece of fic, post it, done. And yeah, legit, 500 words is like, it's nothing. It's nothing. nothing. It's nothing. But trying to tell a story in that amount of space is like really rewarding. I think it's a really nice size. Um, and... I guess writing tip of the episode. If you're trying to to practice tighten your writing, just write 500 word stories, beginning Hon- to end. Yeah, no, uh, honestly, that's great. a really good tip. Um, especially if you can start with a, a vagary as your starting point. Like using magic art is a really good one. Mm-hmm. Um, hitting shuffle until you hear a song you like and going off of that is also a mm-hmm. good one. Um, sometimes you can just like find a random word generator and Uh give yourself three words that you have to fit into the story somehow. All of those things are really, really helpful. And I think that no joke writing a fan fiction blog where I had to write in extremely tight spaces to spec Uh uh, was very helpful for me in learning how to become a person who writes for every IP she's ever liked. So (laughs) (laughs) it prepared me for this life. Well, yeah, one of the, the biggest comments I had about Wilds of Eldraine was how just tight the writing was and how every chapter um, felt much bigger than they actually were. A lot happens. And also, like, a lot of things are... And this is this is a thing in, in writing that I think is very valuable and something that gets really underappreciated is when things aren't shown, uh, mm. when we're just... We're told something either through a dialogue or through narration that gives us an understanding that something happened and we don't need to know we don't need to see it on the page we know everything about it from the way they spoke about it like learning about weaving yes <laughs> um well like <laughs> uh for for example in this story um when they meet they start their climb of the beanstalk and they're there with Troyan, and we mm. don't see the scene where Ruby and Kellen walk through the village and they run into Troyan and Troyan, you know, introduces himself and blah, blah, blah. We don't see that. We just get there and they're doing it. And we learn about Troyan through the narration and through their dialogue choices. Um, And then in the next episode, Troyan is gone and we get one or two lines that explains what happened. And it's just like, we don't, we don't need those scenes. We we've been given them through a different way of then, being just shown them we are given them through dialogue we know that time has passed we know that this character is no longer part of their traveling group and what they thought about it and all of that is given within like two sentences and i think that is example for me of like what is really good tight writing in the short story space where we don't have to be shown every scene we know they happened but we don't have to see them Um, yeah there's this uh there's this piece of advice i think it was vonnegut um, who said it, where uh, you want to start a story as close as you can to the thing happening without, you know, confusing mm-hmm. the reader. And with Troyan, that's a very good example of something like mm-hmm. that. Because uh, we do not have the space in five <laughs> stories to do an entire Troyan arc, much as we would like to. Uh, 
it's Kellen's arc here, it's Ruby's arc, it's Rowan's arc. Those are the three things I'm primarily worried about. So with Troyan, what we need to know is how he helps them up the beanstalk. And that's why we start right at the beanstalk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we need to establish why they would trust him. And I came up with the idea of Troyan and his little adventurer for hire booth (laughs) because I thought it was very storybook. And yeah, two kids would 100% trust a guy that had a little placard outside of a booth that said adventurer for hire will climb spires. <laughs> <laughs> and it works so well with Kellen's character because it's established in the previous story that Kellen will just walk through a town going, I'm looking for witches to kill. Can anyone point me to witches to kill? And then, you know, he also would run to a guy with a sign saying, we'll climb spires and be like, perfect. I have no questions. <laughs> We're good. Um, so I, I, I really appreciated that moment when I was reading episode three and then episode four, where I was just like, wow, this is so good. Like, it's rare to say the writing is better because things weren't in the writing. Um, but I think that to make this such a tight story, making the choice to go, we're going to start at the beanstalk was such a smart choice and it worked so incredibly well. Yeah. And it's. With something like episode four, for instance, the Ruby bottle episode, uh, Mm -hmm. that one was one that I was like, there's I could, in theory, have fit some more Rowan stuff in there um, Mm -hmm. at the end. But it was just such a culmination for Ruby and in some ways for Kellen, too, of Mm -hmm. everything that they were going through that I just I needed to let that breathe. And knowing that Mm -hmm. that needed time to breathe also meant going back in the other stories and making sure that everything was done to set the stage for that episode as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because another thing about this too, about Wilds of Eldraine is that we're not, when we're telling the story, we have to both introduce Kellen to people and also make him as likable as possible. We really want to make sure that everybody loves Kellen as much as I do, my, my precious little nephew. Um, <laughs> and and to so do that- precious. Yeah, he's so precious. We we have to make sure that he gets t- time to shine and that there's cool, memorable story moments for him as well. And even though that chapter is primarily Ruby point of view, it's still about their relationship. And by the end of it, mm-hmm. uh, Kellen is very different because he has his confrontation with Talion. Um, so... I I knew that I needed Kellen and Ruby to have that space because we've already spent so much time with Rowan and with Will that we needed to spotlight these new people a little bit more. So you really do have to make a lot of very, very precise decisions when Mm -hmm. you only have five to work with. Well, I I think that's that's a thing that doesn't get talked a lot about magic story is that this is serialized storytelling. Um that a story like this this is the the third time that ron and will have been you know main characters in magic story you're not going to get everything about their background from just this story part of what makes magic story i think like one of its biggest challenges is definitely how do you onboard people to an ongoing story that has to assume you're both a new reader or a longtime reader. Um, and that conversation is for a different podcast episode. Um, that, 
that we maybe actually did earlier this year? I don't remember. <laughs> did we talk about that with Roy? I feel like that was something we talked about Roy with, but I don't remember exactly. That sounds like something you discussed with Roy. Um, I think that... But, okay. And so, like, yeah, there is a sense of having to explain who Will and Rowan are, but not entirely reestablish them as characters. Um, and that's hard. Yeah, the easiest way to do that is through action and through the way that mm -hmm. people re react to that. And that first scene with Imidane and mm -hmm. the fight there does a lot of heavy lifting toward it, as well as their argument later um, that immediately follows it about where they should go. Um, and, you know, we have to assume that the reader either knows who Will and Rowan are at a top level or that we can give them enough that they'll want to go find out more about Will and Rowan. So we have mm -hmm. to really highlight the important things about them. Uh, the contrast between their natures, the fact that they used to share a spark, uh, Rowan's dizzying proximity to a dark phoenix arc. All of these are things <laughs> that we have to highlight. Uh, but with, with Kellen and Ruby, we not only have to highlight the things that are central to their character, we also have to introduce all of their lore. And we have to endear them in a way that we don't necessarily have to endear mm -hmm. Will and Rowan. Because yeah. if if you read the story and you think Will and Rowan are cool, there's all of this other stuff that you can go check out. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you read the story and you think Kellen and Ruby are cool, this is the only place that they have shown up so far. <laughs> so uh, we really, you know, we want people to keep reading Kellen's story and to care about Kellen's story. Uh, and we also want people who are fans of Will and Rowan to have something that they're able to sink their teeth into. Yeah, it's it's also tricky. You know, this is a new world for a magic story. This is post-March of the Machine. A bunch of planeswalkers have become de-sparked. There are now omen paths between planes. Uh, this is the first time in... I'm, try I'm trying to think... The last time Magic Story had a non-Planeswalker main protagonist like Kellen. And it it might just be since Lorwyn and Shadowmoor. That sounds right I to think. me, yeah. I, I really think it's in the Planeswalker era. It just really hasn't happened until now. And something that I think people have been requesting a lot too is um, mm -hmm. this return to sort of average Joe uh protagonists and people who don't have you know like multiplanar interests at heart kellen is mm -hmm. just trying to find out who his dad is he's just trying to find a place where he feels like he belongs um he's not really concerned with all of this multiplanar nonsense i mean ashiok I, is barely concerned with so, him. as far as I, we so, know kellen kellen lives so far in the boonies he didn't even know the invasion happened yep <laughs> So I, I do want to I want to stick on Kellen for a minute because I have a feeling this could get way out of out of that area pretty quickly, um, especially since you mentioned uh, Ashiok and et cetera. Um, Kellen is going to be a big player in the story. We know this. We have been told this. It is not spoiling anything to say Kellen is showing up. <laughs> yeah, um, I know. Every time there's a Watsy statement about anytime someone at Wizards is like, oh, Kellen, pay attention to Kellen. We're going to follow Kellen's story. And I'm sitting here like. I feel like I am going to say something wrong if I say anything about Kellen. Because oh, these are vague statements and I'm sitting here. Mm -hmm. Anyway, 
So, I like Kellen is is where I'm gonna. I also like Kellen, which brings me to my question. Protect myself legally. <laughs> brings me to my question for you, uh, Kay. Is how much influence did you have on shaping Kellen? Uh, because it's one of those characters who's gonna be seen, presumably, in at least at least one more story. Um, we haven't been told all of them, um, but if it's it's also your character you wrote kellen first how much influence did you have on who kellen is well kellen we had a a fairly decent idea of in terms of i mean his relationship with his family being something that's very positive was something that we've discovered through the writing was something that we really wanted um one thing that's important about kellen though uh, and i think probably the part in which i feel closest to him is that kellen is biracial um He's, you know, this this sweetheart and he's raised by his human family, but he is also part Fae and he goes on this journey to discover what that means to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm biracial. Um, my mother is a black Puerto Rican and my father is a white Puerto Rican. Uh, they were actually born at the same hospital, though. So fun fact. But um, that was always something that I also contended with growing up. Uh, this this feeling of existing in one space and then existing in another space. And these two spaces, neither of them are really quite who you are. And neither mm-hmm. of them quite feels like home. And also having to contend with what one side of yourself thinks of the other side of yourself. And, and trying to reconcile all of these things that don't necessarily make sense, but make up who you are. Um, so I would mm-hmm. say that in terms of who Kellen is... The biggest part of me that's in there is that scene where he's been bullied and he comes home and he's trying to not talk about it because he just doesn't know where to start. And he's kind of given himself over to these bullies and this idea of like, yeah, well, if they're saying it, maybe there's something true in it. That's something that I struggled with a lot growing up. Um, I don't look anything like my mother. I'm very white passing. Um, And when I was growing up, I I would have a lot of instances where people would ask if I was a foster child or they would I would go to parent teacher and they'd ask me why I brought my housekeeper (laughs) and it's just these awful foul things that happen and it has a way of isolating you um Mm -hmm. even if you know your family is very reassuring loving about it and very affirming in your identity and so that was I think the part of me that I most brought to Kellen was that discomfort that he kind of feels and that search for Mm -hmm. definition and meaning in that definition. And also when he kind of comes to realize at the end, you know, I I do want to find this out, but I want to find this out from my mother and I want to engage with this in my own way instead of doing it Mm -hmm. to please other people. Mm -hmm. Um, That was always in the back of my head when I was writing him coming from in terms of his identity and i think that that um was definitely the biggest thing i brought to him god i i love the ending where where kellen because i i talked about this a lot on the last episode where kellen has this confrontation with talion in episode four um Mm -hmm. where they they tell kellen like oh yeah no like i'm basically using you um and this is like heartbreaking because, it, you know, there's two things that happen to Kellen in one moment is you're being used. And the other thing is also Talion is not lying to you. <laughs> they just said that they can't lie to you. So they know your father. They really have yep. the thing you want. 
but also they're going about this in a very cruel way. Um, and especially contrasts with the fact that Ruby has that whole moment with Hilda where she's like, you don't do things for people because you owe, they owe you or you owe them or something. Um, it's not about a, you know, a series of transactions and relationships. Sometimes you just do the right thing for someone. Uh, and I thought it was really interesting. And then Kellen has that sort of weight on him. And then he goes to Talion after completing this quest and says, actually, no, thank you. And then just walks away. Like, it's such a powerful moment for Kellen as a character and also just a really incredible moment in the story because Kellen then just goes to his mom. And I think that is a great way of bringing this entire like hero's journey around. It's like, we've now returned and we didn't return with the thing we wanted. We returned with the strength to take what we had all along. Um, and so I love that. I also love Ronald. Ronald's great. Ronald's <laughs> great. Uh, it's important. Ronald was... I... Hmm? I said, I think it's really important for the story that Ronald's a great guy. Yeah. Because, like, I think it's so easy to write a story like this where, like, Ronald and Kellen have a bunch of friction in their relationship. And it's like, well, you're not my real dad. I'm going to find my real dad. And that's just not the story. It's also not the story for very many adopted children. Yeah. Um, like... It's it's this like fabricated cliche that we've also seen a million times. And like, it's not this story. It's not Kellen. It's not any of these dynamics. Like, it's just not. Uh, and I think that's really good in this. Yeah, I have a very good relationship with my stepfather. Um, I think that if you were to argue with him that I was not you know, one of his kids, he would be quite cross with you. Um, and a lot of that, I think, went into who Ronald is as a mm -hmm. person, where he's just, he's very caring, but he also understands when it's time for him to step out of the spotlight so that Kellen mm -hmm. can have his moments of discovery. Uh, mm -hmm. I wanted Ronald to be the most normal man on earth, but like a normal <laughs> man really who, is. who really loves his stepson, yeah. you know? Um, and, and that was, that was super important, I think, to the story that Kellen does have this core of people who do love him and he can go back there whenever he wants, but he needs to have these answers for himself and he needs to define them for himself because so often when you're a biracial person, you're put into this box or that box, depending on who you're around, what you're doing. Everyone tries to define who you are for you. And it's so important that Kellen is the one who really sets out to define himself. Mm -hmm. And before this episode ends, um, there is there is a character in this story uh, who we have not talked about at all. A character, oh a character who is in the story, but not in the story at all. And that's um, that's little boy blue himself, Oko, who is <laughs> a, a big part of the story without ever appearing in it. And so I wanted to ask how you approach that, because as a reader, we're reading these five stories and I mean, people were making their guesses, um, but we didn't know that Oko was Kellen's dad until the last story was released and we got the ending. Um, you were writing these stories with that knowledge. How did you approach Oko's presence or lack of presence in the story? That's an interesting question. Um, I think that for the most part, you can see it. Um, for me, there was almost an irony to it, uh, especially when Kellen is like beseeching his father to help him and to lend uh -huh. him strength. And it's like, Morty. 
I I know that that's Oko and that that wouldn't work, Kelly. <laughs> um, your dad's not that kind of fae. Uh, but Kellen so desperately wants him to be. And it's just that that feeling of when you're a kid and you think that your dad is su- is Superman and can do anything. And for Kellen, that that feeling is just magnified because for all he knows, his dad is Superman because <laughs> uh, he's a fae. You know, who knows what's going on there? Sorry, not to reveal too much about my childhood on the podcast, but I never had that feeling. Anyway, continue. <laughs> uh, well, it, it was certainly something <laughs> I contended with growing up. And, uh, you know, thinking that your parents are these amazing people and then discovering later in life that they're just human uh, mm-hmm. was another touch point here because Kellen spends mm-hmm. that whole time beseeching his dad to help him and wanting so bad to be like his dad and imagining who his dad is. And all of that is set up for this moment at the end where he discovers who his dad is and he discovers who his dad is through the prism of his mom. Which is important because mm-hmm. uh, we as readers know Oko as the man who destroyed Standard. And, just, <laughs> and, and Pioneer and Modern and, and, and also <laughs> Legacy, I think. <laughs> I, I think Commander was the only thing he didn't fuck up. <laughs> but uh, he is a menace and we know that as readers that he's a menace. But Kellen doesn't. And... The way that Kellen gets to know his father is through this extremely romantic story that his mother tells him. And that allows him to still have some hope, but introduces that dramatic irony where we know things that Kellen doesn't. And that's something that we can carry going forward into the next stories. I I will say, as a slut for dramatic irony who read these stories knowing that so there, there was never a point reading these stories where I didn't know that Oko was Kellen's dad. It's so good. Like, from the moment Kellen was first like, wow, I bet my dad is some fancy fey hero, and I'm going to inherit the hero-ness, and we're both going to be heroes. Yeah, father and son heroes. And I'm sitting here like, Kellen, you sweet little boy, you have no <laughs> idea. Uh, it was definitely like that for it's me, really too. Good. I wanted to set it up so that you could reread really those sections and just feel extremely complicated things. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It it definitely has me excited for future stories, especially if we do get a eventual meeting between Coco, uh, Coco Oko and Kellen, because um, those very different characters, very, very, very different characters. And can I just say, it was such a treat to participate in the Tumblr sexy manification of Oko at the tail uh, end of this story. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. What do you mean by Tumblr sexy manification? He, like, came out of the box like that. You know, that's fair. Uh, but uh, really leaning into it... Uh, it was funny because the initial draft of that section was shorter. And then when discussing it with the story team, they were like, could you could you make him more Byronic? And I was like, can I make him more Byronic? <laughs> I was holding back. You want me to throw off my training weights? I'll do that for you. <laughs> uh, and, and thus we have that section because um, I, I don't know if this is obvious given 
the magic stories I've written. Uh, I'm a chronic villain fucker. <laughs> so I haven't getting noticed. a chance to write a, a, a troublesome man of this persuasion. And in that framing where it's a woman who once adored him talking about it, it's just very fulfilling to me. I, I believe... With my whole heart, I believe you. <laughs> As someone who has also written Oko specifically. There, there's something about Oko being an absent father that has made him somehow more attractive. Um, right? And I don't know what that says about me or other people who have also had this experience. But uh, it's not good like, things, probably. Uh, I, I I made Soren more fuckable. I made Oko more fuckable. <laughs> You made you made Soren somewhat like pitiable, and that is a that is a monumental <laughs> task on its own. I'm just built different. I think you made Soren suffer the correct amount. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed watching him be miserable. Okay, well, I have a couple of last quick questions. Uh, here's an important one: uh, Where did the name of the goose come from? Because the goose has a name, and I want to know. Mm-hmm. Um. I pulled that out of my ass. I am not going to lie to you. Uh, I read a lot of medieval literature uh, when I was working on my degree in creative writing with minor in classics uh, that I eventually dropped out of. Uh, I could not tell you from whence I plucked that name, but I just I was like, it's a goose. You already said your ass. Yeah, I was like, goose, Gallic. Albiorix, I think, was the extent of my thought process on it. <laughs> well, I I love the goose. I loved, uh, I got, I love the scene where Kellen shouts "Happy Birthday." That is just, <laughs> that is such a thing that would happen in like a D and D game that I'm in. Like, He's a good boy. We have such a habit of just like knocking on the front door of the creepy castle we're supposed to be breaking into. Or just like rolling with something like that, where it's like, oh, yeah, happy birthday. Like, great to see you. And so I love that moment. But uh, and I guess like you've you've touched on this a lot while we've been talking. And you just mentioned that, you know, you read a lot of medieval literature uh, when you were uh, in in school. Um, And I called out the the child roll into the Dark Tower came reference on Twitter. Like the moment I saw it, I like. I, I was so, so vindicated by you getting that. <laughs> uh, well, see, my problem is that I have read the entire Dark Tower series by Stephen King and all of accompanying of fiction. Um, and so I'm a big fan of that uh, poem. Um, but and also just I like Robert <laughs> Browning in general. Um, but like, were there any other like big influences you wanted to give like a shout out to like other stories or like pieces of art and work that helped influence your writing for this? That's such a good question. Um, So I think that I had either just seen or was about to see The Green Knight before I started working on the Eldraine stories. And I I would 100% recommend that people check that out because an incredible adaptation of the poem by the same name. And of course, if you haven't read the poem, do check that out. Um, Something that might be less well known, but was hugely influential to me while working on this was a a play uh, called Silence. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the author right now. I'm going to turn. I don't think it has an author listed on the spine, or if it does, I can't read it from here. I'm not getting up. <laughs> <laughs> Silence is an incredibly incredible piece of work. It's uh, a very gender medieval work, which is kind of a strange thing to say in some ways. But it's about this child named Silence who um, is, uh, you know, 
a, an AFAB child who gets raised uh, as a boy and really falls into that role and is is very pleased to be a boy and goes along the classical hero's journey until they get to a point where they save the princess and they're about to marry the princess and they have to debate whether or not they're going to follow through on that marriage. And this was written in, again, the Middle Ages. <laughs> um, and uh, there, there's a whole debate between nature and nurture that happens, like actual nature and nurture show up to debate who should have dominion over silence here, whether they should be able to uh, proceed in the way that they've been raised as a boy or if they have to return to their nature, so to speak, as a woman. Uh, and I just I think it's really cool. Um, I think it's a very interesting work, especially for the time period. Uh, the questions that it asks about heroism and how you define who you are were really influential to me. And it was just very striking as a work. Um, so definitely that one. Also, um, I know I've already said The Green Knight, but it, it does bear repeating. The Green Knight was hugely influential. Uh, but, but the Lay of Marie de France were also very influential here. Um, she was one of the first women to really make a living being an author. Uh, and all of her work is incredible. There's actually also a novel that came out recently called Matrix uh, that does center around her, particularly her later years as the uh, uh, proprietress of a convent. Definitely worth checking out. I just I love medieval morality plays. Um, just yeah. we're having a debate between nature and nurture. Uh, they are called nature and nurture. They're on they're They're just named what they are. We're not going to we're not going to shortcut it. Um, but uh, now I the, thank you. Those are great suggestions. I'm definitely going to have to watch The Green Knight now. I have another movie I have to watch um, probably tonight or tomorrow, but we can save that for final thoughts. Is it Tar? Okay, so I have a copy. I have a, I have the Blu-ray of Tar. Uh, it's sitting next to my Blu-ray player. I've been meaning to watch it for like a week. Um, and I keep, because I bought it and was like, oh, I can watch this. And then we'll interview Kay and I can tell, can tell her that I finally watched Tar. Uh, and I was going to sit down and do it last night. Um, but then a very dear friend who I never really get to spend time with uh messaged me and said hey do you want to play some league together and i was like i feel like i feel like she'll understand that yeah, i have I do to play understand. league of legends instead of watching tar i do understand i do uh, understand if you do watch tar we could film a whole podcast just on that i, I can 100 assure you <laughs> beyond the multiverse tar uh, I, have, well, I have a follow-up question what's that follow-up uh, have you finished witch from mercury i knew yet? you were going to ask me that i knew you were going to ask me that no i have not <laughs> Okay, good, because I still haven't watched Tar. Yes, we're even. We're all even. We're <laughs> still neck and neck. Um, I have watched Blue Beetle twice now, though. So. Oh, oh, did you enjoy it? Oh, it was fucking great. Oh, it was so good. Um, I like Jaime Reyes. He's a good boy. Speaking of good boys who want to be heroes and don't know what they're getting into. Oh, I thought you were about to transition to telling people to sign up for our Patreon. Oh, <laughs> if you want to be a I hero mean, and don't know what you're getting into. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if you want to be a hero, give us money. Great segue, Chris. Uh, no, uh, but also looking at our time, we should probably head in that direction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know where this podcast went. I mean, uh, it really flew by, honestly. Our, all our interviews are like this. It's the worst. They go by so fast and I'm like, but I want to talk to people more. Um... 
So I guess we're going to wrap up talking about Eldraine and talking about your stories. Okay, uh, final thoughts about working on 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 this story uh, in general. Uh, honestly? Like a closing thought on Wilds of Eldraine. Uh, honestly, it's been such a delight to see how people are interacting with it and to see... Uh, cause I, I mentioned this earlier, but I did put just so much effort into the prose of this story. I went about as hard as I possibly could for an IP project, uh, <laughs> on the prose in this story. And it, it felt to me like I was returning to form in some senses in that way. And it's been so, mm -hmm. uh, rewarding seeing everybody get so much out of Wilds of Eldraine and especially to see the way that they both fall in love with Kellen and to see the feelings about Rowan too, which we didn't even talk about Rowan all that much. And I would love to keep talking about Rowan. Uh, God, I, we didn't even, I, I just, I've had this mental image in my head all week of like Rowan and Will walking through the woods. Uh, and, and they pass by a spider web on the side of like a woodland path. And Will just like turns to Rowan and just like, Hey, hey, sis. Uh, I don't know if it's my ears playing a trick. I'm like, Did that spider just call you baby girl? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is my real magic legacy. <laughs> and that's that's that image has been just in my head. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I thought my magic legacy would be like girlfriends or like the Elspeth chapter or no, it's, people care about okay. Storin. But I think I think it might be the spider. <laughs> it's. So let me tell my the two biggest things I have ever and the biggest thing I've ever written for Arena is Oko very nonchalantly going, oh, dear, when he turns into an elk. That's the most famous thing I've written for Arena. <laughs> <laughs> um, for the card game, it's the uh, the Yargol and Multani flavor text. The, That's incredible. The ribbit. That is the that is the most popular flavor text I have ever written. And I literally key smashed it. <laughs> and so like, why do we even try? Why do we bother trying? I will spend an hour trying to find a good pun of some really something really good and clever. And that's never what gets to be pop. I just I, I have no idea what things I do get popular and what things don't. And that's just how it be. You really can't predict it. That's publishing at large, too, is you can try <laughs> to predict it as best you can, but you're never really going to have an answer for what's going to take off or not. And I I was worried that the spider line was too subtle, uh, <laughs> but I see that it was not. Uh, and I appreciate the magic phantom for that. <laughs> We're doing it. I said closing thought and now we're getting talking about things again sorry 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 you know we'll uh, just we'll schedule no, this is my fault we'll schedule another episode to go in depth <laughs> on spider fucking later in the month um <laughs> all right uh um any so we talked about sorrows already any other non-magic things you would like to promote before we head out here so have you when when we did the announcements for the upcoming plane were you sitting there Malding, thinking to yourself, how can we get to go back to Lorwyn when we really should go back to Tarkir? If that was you, then I've got a book for you. And it's called The Tiger's Daughter. And it's this sweeping 
epic fantasy novel that centers on two nascent gods from two uh, rival nations, one kind of based on Mongolia and the other one based on Japan. Uh, they are two princesses from these nations. Uh, they fight a bunch of demons. They fight a bunch of duels. It's super cool. Uh, they kiss a bunch, also super cool. Uh, and I would love if you check that out because I am so close to earning out on that novel. And I would <laughs> love more than anything to receive a check for 25 cents with my name on it. So please do check out The Tiger's Daughter. I promise you'll enjoy it. I can confirm that you will enjoy the first one because I've read it and it is very good. And there is a lot of kissing and more. There's, <laughs> there are some <laughs> scenes that will make you blush. It is. There's a, they learn about weaving in that book too. They certainly do. <laughs> I will, I will say that uh, I, I I was I did recommend this book to a friend and and specifically was asked to thank you for a particular scene of this nature. Oh, oh I, so I have the feeling it apparently I know has gone over well. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, it's, I did that for the culture because that, uh, Tiger's Order was my very first book I ever released. Mm -hmm. And at the time, there weren't that many like super queer books that were out there. And mm -hmm. I wrote that scene because I was like, by God, if I only get the one chance, I am going to do it. <laughs> and so I did. And they did. And uh, here we are. <laughs> yeah, I joked about the segue. I don't even know what the segue is at this point. <laughs> <laughs> what are we? I think we've covered pretty much everything at this point. If people want to give us money, they can on Patreon and they get stuff for it. Not a lot, but yeah. they get stuff. Patreon.com slash the Vorthos cast. What is this episode like 263 or whatever? 262. I don't know. And if unless this is your very first time ever listening to the Vorthos cast, and if it is welcome, uh, you've heard this spiel a bunch. Everyone on our uh, Patreon gets access to our Discord server. We even have a higher tier called uh, whatever we called it. Anyway, you can be a live <laughs> listener <laughs> and <laughs> um, great marketing spiel. Uh, you can be a live listener. Uh, we record our podcast Thursday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. So if that's uh, a time you have free. Um, you can listen to us record the podcast live, which gets you access to all that information early. Um, you can hang out with us a little bit before and after the show. Uh, for our lucky live listeners this week, they got to hear about us talking about uh, putting Slim Jims in pencil sharpeners. It was very, very fulfilling uh, enlightening <laughs> conversation and for the smart Jersey people Shore. with big brains. Don't forget and the Jersey Shore. Shore. Yeah. And we talked a lot about New Jersey and Staten Island, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. Great. <laughs> and again, uh, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, the, the problem is, Kay, is, is is that you're you're a friend of everyone on the show, and so having you on the show is like the entire facade of professionalism just breaks down, and it just feels like we're hanging out and vibing. And I don't even know. Oh, we're how just to having this. burgers at a cheerleading <laughs> convention again, right? God, I had such I had such a good burger last night. Where was it? Was I, it okay? Look, oh, I'm sorry. From, I have to say, diner, I have to in, just say, from a diner in in Central Jersey. We have anyway, to. I like barbecue we have sauce. to end this podcast. <laughs> I, <laughs> can you can you just close us out? Yeah. Uh, congratulations to everyone who has not turned it off and made it this far. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Porthos Cast. And stop. <laughs>